Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Positing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our Bracket on a Boat. This week, we'll be discussing 1972's The Poseidon Adventure, as well as 1995's Waterworld. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to jump into these things? In our previous two episodes, there was some similarities between the two movies on a boat. Like, Adrift and Titanic are both about these terrible disasters at sea and focus on a woman surviving them. Mm-hmm. And then Battleship and Hunt for Red October are both about tense naval battles, at least partially obscured due to the nature of the ships that they are fighting. Right. And here we have Mad Max, but wet, and Towering Inferno, but wet. Yeah. Towering Wet Inferno. Yeah. Well, we should probably go ahead and start with uh, Poseidon Adventure. It is seated higher. Sure. On the final voyage of the SS Poseidon, a tsunami hits, upsetting the boat just a few minutes after New Year's Eve. Reverend Scott, a toughest nailed rebel, manages to convince a few partygoers to join him in trying to reach the bottom, now the top, of the boat in the hopes of being rescued. As the boat slowly floods behind them, the group is whittled off, struggling to keep faith. In the end, Reverend Scott sacrifices himself to get them through the final door. They're the only ones rescued, all others being taken by the waves. The plot, not really that complicated. I could get into it more, but it's a lot of just like, then they get to this place, and then they go on a little further. Then they get to this place, there's an obstacle, etc. Yeah, honestly, you could easily run it as a dungeon crawl in D&D. I have a friend who is planning to run it as a dungeon crawl in D&D, but we all have to pick a random character from media. <laughs> uh, oh, that still hasn't happened yet? Nope. <laughs> We've been quarantined. Yeah, but like, more of the fun of this movie is like the wacky characters, including the old Jewish couple, the Rosens, confirmed bachelor James Martin, uh, precocious children Susan and Robin, problematic couple Detective Rogo and Linda, crewman Akers, singer Noonie Perry, and Reverend Frank Scott, the Reverend who fucks. <laughs> Because of the very easy nature of this movie, it's been remade a few different times in, in homage. There's like a remake from like 2007 or whatever. There's a few different TV show versions. There's a Doctor Who episode that's just this, but in space. It's a pretty easy premise. This came out in 72 and the early 70s were kind of a smorgasbord of like disaster films. You have Airport, Towering Inferno, Earthquake, that sort of thing. Uh, disaster movies are kind of like this Hollywood staple. The 70s was kind of the golden age of that, and we've kind of had a few here crop up here and there. Some of them are good, some of them are very generic. It is a tricky balancing act to make a single catastrophe that doesn't really care about you as a person into a threat that lasts for two whole hours. Because a lot of disasters tend to be like over pretty quickly. Earthquakes are just like a few seconds of shaking. A flood is... A good way to go about things, the water levels just keep rising and stuff, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, honestly, a lot of times they work much better for television shows. Mm-hmm. It's why I think the Twister is really good, because it has like you know, four or five different Twister sequences. It's not unlike any given like wacky road trip movie or like Greek mythology movie, where you just keep like encountering different adventures, but all those adventures go fast and in a circle. <laughs> That's our view of Twister. <laughs> but as with most disaster films... The Poseidon Adventure shows how good it is by how much it makes us care about the characters that are trapped within. And at first, they are so good. Before the disaster hits, I was just like, can we just spend the whole movie just watching these characters bounce off each other? Like yeah, having it, like cute little vignettes? It kind of felt like something off of the love boat. So the movie opens with, I think, half a dozen just little vignettes where we get like two to three characters talking, and each one is so vibrant and real, and I'm like, yeah, these characters feel like real people who, while they definitely are exaggerated in a lot of ways, I believe in them as people. Mm. And like, we get really fun, weird details, like how Bell Rosen apparently is super into trains. I like that man. Oh, of course you like him. Why shouldn't you? He runs on time, like a train. 
Yeah, you were trains. When in my whole life did I ever run for a train, hmm? Who cried for a week when they tore down the 3rd Avenue well? Which is a really weird quirk, but I love it. Yeah. Also, here she's played by Shelley Winters uh, with very powerful hair. Uh, we also have Leslie Nielsen here for a little bit. He is the captain of the ship. Playing a serious role again. Yeah. We should have loaded extra bunkers in Gibraltar. We are top heavy, and when that pump is repaired, I am taking on more ballast. It's always weird seeing him in serious roles. He, like, he's a very talented actor. He's just very well known for his roles in satires and parodies. But here he's playing the kind of old captain who thinks of his boat in a personified way that is also feminine. It's problematic, but also kind of sweet how he talks about her as a dignified lady. <laughs> Named Poseidon. <laughs> we, we stand a trans watercraft. A few of the character introductions, like with the captain and his rivalry with the owner guy, Lenarcos, who's pushing him to go faster so they don't take on any more ballast and get get there by time, whatever, Monday. I figured it was going to be more of a thing, but no, they just get dunked in the water and they're gone. We don't even see them die. Yeah, like they, they kind of set up this tension of, you know, we're behind schedule. This is the Poseidon's last voyage. It's about to be scrapped. They have a salvage crew just ready to go and they like they are paying them to be ready as soon as it gets there so they're having to pay extra days where they're not doing anything and that's causing this tension between the captain and the owners one of the very first scenes the captain is calling down to engineering to like joe what the hell's going on down there is there nothing more you can do with those stabilizers and he's like there's nothing wrong with the stabilizers so there's nothing more i can do with them besides i got my hands full with this pump you know damn well what the trouble is it's that bastard Lenarcos! And the captain's like, Would you care to repeat yourself? He's standing right here. God, I hope he heard me! <laughs> I love that scene. That was so good. Yeah, and like, this tension is kind of a distraction because it has pretty much nothing to do with the rest of the film. I mean, it's partially the reason that they end up in the disaster, but honestly, they probably would have anyway. They don't have enough ballast to stay upright, but uh, it's never explicitly stated that that's the reason they flipped over. You can infer that, but that was still a really big wave. And also, none of the characters know that that's the reason. Mm-hmm. Which I'm okay with. I'm okay with just having these characters here just long enough to help us understand the plot, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Another interesting conceit is that this is all happening on uh, New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. So the wave hits like just after midnight where they are and they do the whole new year celebration and then the wave hits Mm -hmm. so you have everybody in increasingly bedraggled fancy dress Mm -hmm. which is just kind of a fun way to do things Mm -hmm. another thing i like a lot is that we have this very elegant progression through the ship like we're not like bouncing all around following different characters we're just like we're in the party scene and now we're in the in the kitchens and now we're in these hallways and now we're in the boiler room etc that does eventually break down towards the final act where there's some disagreement on which direction to go whether to head towards the bow or to the uh, engine room mm-hmm. and they kind of like fiddle around for a little bit until they get everyone on the same page again and heads toward towards the back of the ship mm-hmm. We've kind of introduced all of our main characters in our own little vignette scenes. Then we're at the party and we're seeing them all uh, mingle with each other. Then shit goes down and our main character is Reverend Scott. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of trying to get everyone like, no, we can't just wait here for rescue. The whole ship is toppled over. We need to head up. Otherwise, this is just going to start flooding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he grabs as many people as he can. He tries to get the others to come, and they decide not to. 
and then probably a little too soon after that decision's made and the rest of them are all up to the kitchens after climbing up a like synthetic Christmas tree. The water comes in and then it's a mad dash for the Christmas tree. Too many people are climbing out at the same time and it falls over and everybody dies. Mm-hmm. There is an almost Blues Brothers-esque vibe to how the water seems to like come up right behind them after they've made a big decision. Which I think could almost work if you pushed it. Like, there's a read of this movie that is kind of characters versus God thing Mm -hmm. going on, like testing their resolve or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it's not quite explicit enough and it's not quite cartoonish enough all the way throughout. Yeah. I think that could be fine, but it needs to be either whole ass or no ass, not this somewhat half ass version. Mm -hmm. It does give us that really fun shot of Reverend Scott just slowly closing the door, knowing there's nothing he can do to help at this point, which is grim. Mm hmm. I love a scene that happens here, though. There's these two clerics in the ship. There's Reverend Scott, you know, the Reverend who fucks, and this, like, old Reverend uh, Chaplain John. Yeah, and we've seen them interact before. Uh, in fact, our introduction scene to Reverend Scott, he's he's on the ship because he is heading to a country in Africa, and he's heading there because he pissed off his bishop and effectively, like, got a crap assignment and got banished. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's like, banished to some new country in Africa? Hell, I had to look it up in the map to find out where I was going. <laughs> oh, my bishop doesn't know it, but he's given me exactly what I wanted. Elbow room. Freedom! We understand him as this kind of rebellious religious leader. What's that phrase? Um, something, something on the edge. Uh, don't play by the rules. Loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules. Yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. But he gives a sermon at one point, and then, and then after the ship is flipped, he's trying to convince... Chaplain John to come with him and ask him, hey, what do you think of my sermon? And John's like, I like your motivation, but you, you only speak for the strong. I'm here for the weak who can't go, which I think is a really good read. Like, in a lot of disaster movies, there's kind of this sense of, like, you have to be tough and power through it. And I like that the movie has some forgiveness for people who just aren't going to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, importantly, can easily get lost in action narratives. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the other major characters. So we have... Detective Mike Rogo and his wife, Linda. Oh my god. And they are like the archetype of this constantly fighting couple. They are definitely characterized as a little bit uncouth and lower class. Mm-hmm. You know that couple from every sitcom? It's them. Exactly. I will say, Detective Rogo seems like he's quite a bit older than this lady. Uh, Yeah. That's probably the case. We should also mention that Linda was previously a sex worker. And her cop husband kept arresting her to keep her off the streets until he could, like, get up the nerve to ask her out. Or, like, convince her to marry him. Or Yeah. The dynamics of Linda and her history as a sex worker and how her life status has changed and how they feel about it and how she's ashamed of it but he isn't is interesting and i wish it was explored more and better it is not as bad as it could have been but i think it could have been more yeah considering that this is 72 i'm impressed with how well it's been handled like you said it it could be better but it could also have been much much worse and i've seen much worse much more recently Mm -hmm. and i love linda she's she's scrappy Mm -hmm. like she's she's a spitfire yeah yeah she's a spitfire um and i appreciate that she calls people out i appreciate that she I wish that she speaks her mind at one point when her husband is aghast that she might have to take off her dress to climb this tree. And so you're only wearing panties under that. She's like, just panties. What else do I need? I appreciate that the second the going gets tough, she's like, nope, I've I've been in tough situations before. I'm going to keep going through this. Mm -hmm. Heck yeah. Which makes it really suck that she dies. Yeah. And for 
very little reason. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll get to that. I want to talk about some of the other characters before we get into the the, the two shitty deaths, the two shitty deaths, and it, it like in general the kind of fumbled landing. Yeah. We've got confirmed bachelor James Martin, who is American Mr. Humphreys from Are You Being Served? He owns a haberdashery shop. Yeah, he he's a haberdasher. He's super into like health food. Like he takes a bunch of vitamins with his dinner. And this kindly Jewish grandmother is like, "Why aren't you married? You're such a nice man." <laughs> they are laying it on thick. I think it's about as thick as you could get in the '70s while still being like commercially viable. Yeah. But I do appreciate that he, you know, makes it all the way through. He gets to continue to be a hero. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any times when he's, like, presented being, like, cowardly or less of a man. Sure, he's not, like, doing all the action stuff, but we also have two, like, action-y guys to do that. And so he's here being sensitive and helping characters get through things. I'm here for that. He's also specifically trying to get the two hotheads to not snipe at each other and work together. Mm -hmm. Again, a character that could have been handled a lot worse being handled okay here. Mm Mm-hmm. For the 70s, this is a decent representation. Yeah. And most of the time, he kind of paired up with Noonie Perry, who was the singer at the party, whose brother slash co-band member uh, dies, and she's not handling it well. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's stressed, but she's constantly on the verge of nervous collapse. Mm-hmm. And plays it really well. Like, good job acting. I think they kind of paired them up so that you could assume a romantic connection if you wanted to just be incredibly blind to these things. Yeah, like, thankfully they don't push it too hard, and he's like, okay, no, he just, he sees that she needs help and is helping her, because that's the type of person he is, as opposed to trying to push a romantic connection. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple times where it gets really close to that line, and it's a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm also kind of sad, because like, there's like the one song that she sings, and it's something about the morning after, and I feel like we could have brought that back, you know, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Rosens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're on their way to Israel to see their grandson, who they have yet to meet. Mm-hmm. And they have a very special like medal to give him. And they're kind of a sweet couple. Like, there's a little bit more sniping between them than I wish there was, but... I didn't see too much sniping between them. Like there, There's some like arguments, and it's very distinct from the contentiousness that the Rogos have. Mm-hmm. The Rosens are just like, they're bickering like an old married couple. Yeah. And Belle Rosen, as we already mentioned, is played by Shelley Winters. Uh, Manny Rosen is played by, I can't remember the actor's name, but if you've ever seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, he's Grandpa Joe. Mm -hmm. And they're great. They're really fun. They're like a very pleasant couple. Yeah, they bounce off each other incredibly well. We should probably talk about some of the fat phobia with uh, Mrs. Rosen. I, there's, mm, I, uh, so Belle Rosen is a fat woman who I think, the movie plays her as being more self-conscious about her fatness than she strictly needs to be, but then also has her just have a heart attack from overexertion at the end. And it's so frustrating because it happens right after she announces that she was the like head of the like, women's swim team. Look, I was the underwater swimming champ of New York, three years running. I held my breath two minutes and 47 seconds. Let me do this. And uh, stays reference Scott when he's like trapped under a thing underwater. And I have never seen a fat old lady doing a big action thing in a movie like i can't think of any time that's happened that it wasn't played as a joke yeah, or, like, or, or like a big thing yeah it was fantastic like oh oh wow this movie did this in 72 wow that's fantastic and then she dies and all of the goodwill just evaporated i'm so frustrated with it too because if she lived that would have been 
such a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, also, like, the visuals of her, of her underwater lifting this stuff were really cool. Like, you can see this woman clearly had some, like, skills to be able to pull this off in what I assume were not very safe work conditions. It's the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so mad. Yeah, it it is a travesty that that's how it ended up. It's so very, very frustrating. And unfortunately, like, after his wife's death, Manny just kind of, like, shuts down. He kind of just shuffles forward. He's not really a, a character in the movie after that. Mm-hmm. He's just a body. Which is sad, because he, he was interesting and vibrant beforehand, and he was very encouraging of his wife. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't get why they made that decision. The same reason they probably decided, oh, Linda's gotta die. She just falls off the stairs as they're making their way to the engine room for no discernible reason. I guess to give us a sad. Yeah. It bugs me out that you have two really passionate, vibrant women who are very unusual, like the kind of characters you don't really see even today, and they both get killed off where there are husbands who are, in one case, you know, fine, and the other ones, mm, not great, get to live. Yeah. Yeah. We do have two more deaths in the party. So early on... We have crewman Ayers, uh, unfortunately, dies while trying to climb up through some of the vents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the water's rising. He already has an injured leg from the boat flipping over, and is he falls off the ladder, and they're not able to save him. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel a lot about that. Like, he seemed fine, but I wasn't, like, he wasn't much of a character. You kind of assumed he wasn't necessarily long for the world. That he, His shirt was very red, even though it was actually yellow. Yeah. He was helpful navigating some of the parts of the ship that he was more familiar with, but eventually that role switches over to Robin, who had made friends with the engineer of the boat, mm-hmm. and just like, yeah, this is this is the way we need to go. The engineer showed me. I love Robin. He is very into boats, the way lots of kids are very into dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And like, he was like having this like rapid fire knowledge about how the boat works is really fun and weird. Mm-hmm. It's such an unusual trait, but it, it gives him a a way to be useful even despite being a child, which is a really good thing to give your kids. They're not just like the annoying kid. Yeah. And it means he gets to kind of like be precocious and write about things in the face of like people who are much older than him, which and is just a fun dynamic. And dismissive of his knowledge. Yeah. And just a fun dynamic. Mm-hmm. Like this movie starts off really, really solid and you care about all of these characters and it's compelling. And then after they get to the point where the party splits and kind of Scott goes off just like, I think I can get us to the engine room. Give me 15 minutes to prove it. And if not, leave without me. And I think that's where the movie just kind of slows down. We're kind of in this plot cul-de-sac waiting on things to happen. And it's just not really compelling. And then we just kind of get unnecessary character death after unnecessary character death. And I just think that portion of the film is paced really poorly. There's also the scene where Reverend Scott like jumps onto this valve and like is hanging from it to turn it to like turn off the steam so they can get through. Mm-hmm. And the steam just appeared there like an obstacle in a video game. Yeah, <laughs> that was a little silly. But he's doing this and he's like giving a speech on how they all need to go on, and it's just completely silent. There's no score behind it. Why would you hire John Williams not have a giant, like, climactic action score for this moment? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, and then he does that and it just kind of, like, falls into this, like, <laughs> boiling water and they, they move on. I feel like there probably were ways to solve that problem that didn't involve just, like, I'm done now. Sproosh. Like, tying a rope around his waist or whatever. I might have, like, missed the shot where they established it, but I couldn't tell exactly where things were. So I was kind of thinking he would, like, swing onto a platform or whatever. I didn't realize this was kind of a, like, I know I'm going to die here moment. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's another problem is as they get closer and closer to their goal, it's very hard to parse the environments and we don't have a good sense of what they need to be doing, where they should be going. Whereas early on in the film, everything is very linear and we're able to understand, okay, this is the goal. This is what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Another ding I'll give to the movie, there's a decent number of upskirt shots for poor, poor Linda, Mm -hmm. which... Well, I like the kind of empowering, I don't need anything more line. I feel like the, the camera was also happy about that line for different reasons. Yeah. On the flip side, there's a very good scene where Noonie is on the ladder preventing anybody else from, from climbing because she's like stuck with shock. And uh, James is just talking to her like, okay, hey. That's, that's the one. That's the tough one, the first one. Now again. Now again. Once more. That's it. All right. One wrong at a time now. That scene is great. That scene is so good. Mm-hmm. Red Button's acting is so powerful in that scene. Like the way she's being so gentle and caring, but also terrified, is really impressive. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much about the movie that I want to like so much, and I'm so frustrated that it just falls in all these tiny ways. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, Death by a Thousand Cuts. I totally get why there are so many remakes. It's it just it lends itself so well to being almost there. Mm-hmm. I do think it's time to switch over to the other film we're talking about this week. Speaking of things that need a remake. Waterworld. 500 years in the future, the ice caps have melted and every continent on Earth is underwater. The Mariner arrives at an artificial atoll to trade dirt, a valuable resource for supplies. But as he's leaving, he's found to be a mutant with gills and is attacked. He kills the guard in self-defense and is imprisoned and the community votes to execute him against the pleading of local trader Helen. As he's being lowered into the bio-recycling pit, The atoll is attacked by smokers, a faction of pirates who are seeking a girl with a map to dry land. Helen frees the mariner during the the chaos and asks for help escaping the siege with her ward, Enola, the girl the smokers are after. The three travel for a few days, but are eventually captured by the smokers who take Enola and destroy the boat. They are rescued by Gregor, an inventor who also escaped the atoll in his balloon. The mariner regroups, captures a smoker jet ski to go rescue Enola. He boards their HQ, the oil tanker, the Exxon Valdez, rescues Enola, and blows up the ship with a flare dropped into the oil tanks. The two are picked up by Gregor and Helen in the balloon and sailed for dry land. They reach the fabled place, but the mariner realizes he's made for the sea and leaves the others to search for others like him. Man, you left out all the shitty abuse dynamics. Almost like the movie didn't need them. Yep. Let's just get it out of the way. Kevin Costner is just a huge jerk, both on camera and behind it, and it's so bad that it made all the good parts of the movie overshadowed by how unlikable this protagonist is. Yeah, so after they leave the Azel, after the much too long stunt show with the smokers, because mm-hmm. that's really it is, it's a stunt show. Yeah. It's like the base rollerblading scene from Jupiter Ascending. I'm not familiar. Well, trust me, I'm right about this. Okay. And it makes sense to like focus on your stunts there because this was literally designed as a ripoff of Mad Max, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm totally fine with. This is also a like compelling conceit. It's like, okay, instead of everything being dry, everything is wet. Mm-hmm. It's Pokemon Sapphire instead of Pokemon Ruby. <laughs> right? <laughs> but those you know few days before Enola is captured by the smokers are just the Mariner being a abusive asshole to Helen and Enola for no reason other than we have to establish that he's a loner and just doesn't like people. Mm -hmm. But the magnitude to which he is abusive is ridiculous. Like they talk out of turn and he cuts off their hair. Mm -hmm. Another thing like that that we don't really need to get specific about. Yeah. It's so bad. And also like you can cut a good like 
20 to 30 minutes from the middle of the film where all that's happening and just go straight to this tender scene where where Helen and the Mariner is like talking on the prow of the ship. It's called compassion. You probably wouldn't understand after being alone so much. I'm not alone. Got this boat for a friend. Don't lie to me. Don't cut my throat when I'm asleep. Gives me a place to be. I pity you, really. Go from there, and it's fine. Like, Mm -hmm. it's believable that he's kind of socially awkward and doesn't really like them, but doesn't, you know, actively hate them. Yeah. Um, And then is growing to have his heart warmed by them. Mm -hmm. But because of how much of a bully he is at the start of the film, I don't believe that they become friends. It doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. It feels like forgiving things that should not be forgivable. At least not without significant work. And I don't count one act of saving someone as significant work. Yeah, like you said, if you cut a bunch of the scenes where he's just heaping abuse on them, I can believe the whole redemption arc for him from being like this loner who doesn't need people and doesn't like people to beginning to actually care for Helen and Enola. But it just doesn't work. Also, Costner is just super stiff here as an actor Mm -hmm. and like it's something that i've seen from him again and again robin hood prince of thieves also in dances with wolves the only film that i can recall that i actually like him in is field of dreams and but it's not an action movie it's just like a character study and him loving baseball (laughs) yeah and i mean i can't help but compare this to mad max fury road which is basically the same thing a socially awkward loner winds up Saving and being saved, both literally and also metaphorically, by a woman who is trying to protect her charges from an evil oil baron. But Tom Hardy plays him as this like twitchy, barely holding it together guy, as opposed to this stoic jerk. And the way he kind of remembers how to person is sweet and heartwarming, as opposed to shrug, I guess. Which is why it's so easy for me to think that this was a bad job, because it was. It's clearly been done better. Mm-hmm. To be fair, like a better comparison would probably be the earlier Mad Max films, but those have Mel Gibson in them, and so I will refuse to watch them. I haven't actually seen them either. Not, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it has some of the same crew as Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. And I will say, the best part of this movie is the world building and production design. Yeah. Set design. Great. Costume design. Great. So the world building falls apart in a few places, especially when you get into the character of the deacon. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it like it makes sense. Like Dirt would be this super precious commodity because you need it to grow plants for food beyond like what you can fish up. Mm-hmm. And the weird tech levels, how they vary and how the Mariner's weird boat that does all this cool stuff is like a, a marvel to them is all very believable. It feels less like a necessarily like, coherently built world like, I don't know, Outer Last Airbender and more like like you're playing someone's homebrew campaign and they just keep like being like, yeah, sure, with stuff. Like, yeah, the villain's super into golf. Sure, why not? Yeah. yeah, your boat can, you press a button, weird things happen. Sure. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things is just the the name Smokers. So they're called Smokers because rather than using sails like everybody else does, they have access to oil and refineries. So they ride gasoline powered ships mm-hmm. and like jet skis and speedboats and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it leaves this smoke across the water. And Deacon even has a bit where he's like, Well, excuse me. Did I say anybody could leave before the battle was over? Did I? No. No. Well, do something. I hate sales. Like, it's such a great bit. 
And even things like the bio-recycling thing and this weird tiny orchard on a boat is so cool to look at. Like, I want to spend time in the world. The, the more time the camera just pans across, I'm like, yes, good. Stay here. Don't look at Kevin Costner. Yeah. At the very beginning of the film, uh, when we're just kind of, like, getting a feel for this mariner, like, he has this little lime tree that he's tending. He's like, yes, of course, he has to have the lime tree, otherwise he'd get scurvy. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There's an lo- awful lot of thought put into this film, and unfortunately... All of the problems that I have with this film, okay, not all, but a vast majority of the problems I have with this film come down to Kevin Costner, either like his acting being bad or the way he acted behind the camera. He was backseat directing so bad, the director left and he, like Kevin Costner, just had to finish by himself. Apparently Joss Whedon was involved somehow. Yeah, Joss Whedon was brought in to help with script writing, but it eventually became... It got to the point where he just had to edit whatever Costner wanted to add to the script without any changes at all. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to spend all of our time talking about Kevin Costner when we could be talking about people like Dennis Gasner, the production designer, who has been on a lot of things like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Road to Perdition, The Truman Show, Golden Compass, and Blade Runner 2049. Or the set designer, Nancy Hay, who worked on Dreamgirls and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, A Quiet Place 2, also Road to Perdition, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. Or the art director, David F. Klassen, who worked on Zathura, and Iron Man, and Spider-Man, and another Spider-Man, and a third different Spider-Man. <laughs> this man has put all the Spider-Man on screen. Wait, literally all three franchises? I don't think he was directly involved with uh, Homecoming or Far From Home, but because of how much that Spider-Man is influenced by Iron Man, which he was the art director for, he is responsible for all the Spider-Mens. <laughs> You will believe that a Mac can shot web because of David F. Klassen. Yeah, like I, I really want to like make sure those names are still out there because these are like people who do sets and costumes and props don't really get as much love and attention as your actors and your directors and your writers, even though so much of the films we love are get a lot from them, especially before we had CGI to do everything for us. Mm-hmm. Films are communal. Alter theory is fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of unsung heroes in the beloved films that we watch, and a lot of really hardworking people working on stuff that fails for no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. Also, so this is Waterworld. We do have a single scene with a sea monster that lasts all of 30 seconds. We barely get to see it, and we were both so mad. Yeah, so there's a bit where they're going fishing, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm kind of sad there aren't more sea monsters in this. I get it. That wouldn't be very realistic. But it'd be fun if there were... There's a sea monster! And then by the time Jackson finished saying, there's a sea monster, the scene was over and he was just cooking lumps of fish meat. Yep. Uh, so sad. And yeah, like, I want a little bit more of that. Like The sea monster and the Mariner's gills and ugly feet. They're not web feet. They're just ugly feet. We're kind of fun and I want more of this world of like how the world is changing to adapt to the new water world state. Yeah. Uh, We also get this mixed bag of a sequence when the Mariner shows Helen dry land, i.e. the world beneath the waves. I loved it so much. I loved what they were attempting to do. Unfortunately, the technology wasn't quite there yet, and the compositing is very noticeable for me. Oh yeah, it doesn't look good, but thematically, and in terms of what the art was trying to be, I really appreciated it. I'd love to see concept art for that. Heck yeah. As I think we've started establishing more and more, I really love narratives where things are upside down and or underwater. My favorite part of Jurassic Park 2 is when the trailer is over the cliff. Anyway, and so while logically I knew that that all that must be under there, 
I didn't think we'd get to see it. And watching them kind of go through this ruined city where you can see hills with power poles leaning over to the side was gorgeous and haunting and conceptually fascinating. And I would love to see something that really explores that part of the world specifically. Mm -hmm. Because he can dive down there, the Mariner brings back a whole bunch of stuff from the old world that people are like fascinated by. Like one of the early scenes of the film, he offers a bunch of kids around the dock mirrors if everything is on a ship when he gets back. Mm -hmm. And like they're fascinated by the mirror. It'd be like giving a six-year-old like a fidget spinner. <laughs> yeah. And we see his kind of cave of wonders inside of his boat where it's just all this cool, weird stuff that he probably doesn't really even understand that he's just scavenged because it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Another neat little world-building moment. So uh, Gregor has a small library because he's an inventor and he's trying to get whatever knowledge he can from the old world. And one of his books, the most prominent one, is just a phone book. And I love it so much because, of course, a phone book is going to survive an apocalypse in 1995. They're everywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. I will say, the water levels rose pretty fast. Like, it was just like, it got to 1995 and then it would just flood now. I think there's like a vague implication that humans did something to mess up the world. Like, there was like a, an incident as opposed to like just the natural rise of the water that we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. But we don't really get to hear what, that's fine. I don't need specifics. I get it. Yeah. But there's a lot of like, 90s stuff lying around, like CD players. Mm -hmm. uh, National Geographics. <laughs> Boy, National Geographics are a big part of the plot. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about these stunts, because they are also another really strong part of the film. I think they're used a little bit too much to kind of patch up some of the failures of the film in other places, and some of the action se sequences go on for too long. But the siege of the Atoll is fantastic. We even get like little world-building pieces, so... The atoll, like, it has a wall built around it. To get through, they set up, like, these ramps floating on the water for the jet skis to go over, like, as if they were siege ladders. And it's it's so dumb, but so cool. <laughs> you can tell that people were putting a lot of thought into, okay, how would you siege a walled city that's on the water? Mm -hmm. like, that was really cool. And, like, you know, what technologies would exist on both sides to protect people? That was also really interesting. There mm -hmm. were a lot of, like, fun thought put into this. Mm-hmm. In the same way, that you, there's a lot of fun thought put into uh, the Mariner's boat that has all this cool, like, all these gizmos that do fun things. Yeah, especially, like, trying to man a boat solo. Like, he has levers that will automatically unfurl his sails, or he has this timing system for his diving bell that will, like, bring it up after a certain amount of time mm -hmm. on its own. All of that stuff was, like, practical effects. They built the whole boat. It works. I actually think it, it got refurbished and is now like a racing vessel. Nice. One thing I don't like, they have a few feature speak things. Like they call months lunars and they call clean water hydro. Or maybe just water in general. But it's really only those two things plus like smokers. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's either more or no future speak, you know? Like, it doesn't quite feel like a believable change. It feels like there's, like, these one or two things that were changed. Yeah, they also mention, like, a few different languages. The Mariner speaks one, I think they call it Portugreek. Portugreek, yeah. And then, like, like, I believe that that could happen. That makes real yeah. sense. Yeah, but, like, most of the film is in English. Uh, most of the prominent characters speak English. Mm-hmm. A comparison I want to draw is the far future from Cloud Atlas, where they do kind of have this only somewhat comprehensible version of English that's being spoken, and that feels like they put enough thought into making a 
coherent world. Like that was mm-hmm. that that works in I believe that setting. Mm-hmm. And yes, I just praised Cloud Atlas. Uh, <laughs> I guess check to make sure your socks are still on. Another things uh, I really enjoy. Jack Black is in this movie. Oh god, I forgot about Jack Black. Yeah, at one point there's a plane that goes after the Mariner to kind of scout where they're at, and it, it's piloted by Jack Black. His gunner gets impaled by the harpoon, but he's able to fly back and like tell his story to the Deacon. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about it. The child, he had the girl with him. Yeah, and some are told bitch. They killed Ed. <laughs> what a weird place to find a Jack Black. And then we were talking about, wait, what if Jack Black was the mayor, the main character of this film? And how much better that would... Honestly, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out who would be like the best replacement for Kevin Costner in this film. Who were some of our picks? I know we had some good ones. Uh, I we think t- Kurt Russell's who we decided on for the... We, we talked about Kurt Russell would be a good choice. We talked about Antonio Banderas. Yes, that would be really fun. Uh, we talked about, a little bit about Keanu Reeves, possibly. Mm-hmm. Who I thought was a little on the young side, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you made this right now, uh, you could pick either like Jason Momoa or uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. They're about the right age. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do really well with this. Yeah. Uh, I'd also love to see some like really weird Spring of Fences versions. Like, let's put Rihanna in the main character <laughs> role. Let's put uh, Bette Midler there. Aquafina, obviously. <laughs> yeah, let's just... <laughs> eight remakes of Waterfront. Each of them starring each of eight characters from Ocean's 8. Mm-hmm. Ocean's World. Mm-hmm. One other like weird thing, the Deacon is this huge campy character. Mm-hmm. He's a little too campy, especially compared with the Mariner, who was so stoic. And it gives this weird like seesaw feel as we're switching back and forth between perspectives. Actually, imagine Jack Black now, not Jack Black then, Jack Black now in a water world where he's like this, this recluse who just doesn't want to be around people, but it's kind of wacky and fun. Against, like, you know, this very, like, over-the-top Republican villain. Like, why howdy the Deacon is one of the Republicans but wet. Like, the themes are so strong, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's also this narrative about unchecked progress. Like, there's a, a great bit where he talks about how... There used to be a toll on ever arise. Mm-hmm. Where the hell are they all going? Well, we sunk a few. <laughs> Like, that's the reason there aren't any more to sink. We sunk them. The major reason that Deacon wants to get to dry land is because he's running out of oil. Mm-hmm. So it's a great bit where he gives a great speech and then sends everyone to row, and then after they're all rowing, someone's like, hey, where are they rowing? I don't have a goddamn clue. <laughs> don't worry. They'll row for a month where they figure out I'm faking it. It is a great way to summarize how a lot of politics works of people who just want to keep the wheels spinning so they can stay in power until they figure out how to stay in power longer. That was a great bit. Someone who is inclined, that is not me, could definitely do a full breakdown of this film, analyzing it as uh, Kevin Costner coming to terms with his political realignment from Republican to Democrat, which did happen in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see how that makes sense in there, but I don't want huh. Yeah, like, I don't want to continue to engage with this film enough to do that but i figured here's my little pet theory about why the film is the way it is and why costner had such a bee in his bonnet about how it all worked Mm -hmm. yeah the themes are very rich and i think honestly would be really fertile ground for exploring further like if the people who make snowpiercer want to you know stop doing that and then instead make wet piercer it has been 25 years Mm -hmm. It's been 25 years. I think that 
it is time for someone to attempt a Waterworld remake. I think, especially with climate change being even more prominent in the public consciousness, I think now is a great time to try and re-engage with this world and some of these themes. And you already had, like, people are definitely interested. Fury Road did gangbusters, and it was this huge, massive hit, and I believe they're doing another one. Yeah, I think we're getting a Furiosa prequel movie, and I'm not here for that. We don't need that. I'm interested in a Mad Max-esque thing, but starring a, like, female lead. Yeah, there were talks about how we are going to get a movie about the old ladies who just, like, live out in the desert with guns. I want that movie. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Please give me a bunch of old crones in the desert. <laughs> there is a lot to like about Waterworld. It just, unfortunately, gets overshadowed by, like, these huge, glaring flaws. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it was so frustrating both because it was 8,000 years long. We are still watching it. Um, <laughs> but also because like it had all the stuff that could have worked. Mm-hmm. I think that more camp would have really helped this movie. Just like I think that's probably what would work really well for the potential remake. If it was just a little bit... If it was even more heightened. Mm-hmm. If it just went harder all over the place. Yeah, like if it was just kept winking at the audience. I know this is me being a broken record, but the people who made Into the Badlands would do a really good job with this. <laughs> Fun over the top stunts, very dynamic world, big speeches, mm-hmm. interesting politics. Yeah. Right. I think I'm ready to move into our end segment. Sure. So, which boat is more intact? <laughs> oh, wow. This is a hard question, honestly. Yeah. In Waterworld, the Atoll is destroyed. The Mariner ship is destroyed. The Exxon Valdez is destroyed. It's super destroyed. Like, he gets a new boat. At, like, the Mariner gets a new boat at the end. and then there's, count. And then there's the balloon. We all get extra, extra boats at the end. That's just how you end a water movie. <laughs> but there's only the one boat in... Like, so there's the one big boat in Poseidon, and that's the only boat in the film, and that completely overturned. But it's... It's not that destroyed, really. It seems like it was probably flooded, but I feel like it's still more or less intact-ish. Mm-hmm. Like, it is probably more intact than Titanic, honestly. Yeah. It's also probably more intact than most of the boats in Waterworld. Yeah, probably. Wow, I think we have to give it to the Poseidon from Poseidon Adventure. Which is wild. That's the whole theme of the movie. <laughs> that boat doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay, here is a fun philosophical existential question for you. If the Waterworld takes place in the future, I mean, those boats don't exist yet, but presumably the parts they're made from might exist at this point because they're made in the 90s. So... Does the Ship of Theseus award count if the boat is not destroyed but not even made yet? If it is pre-destroyed? Well, I will say that Exxon Valdez no longer exists. It Its name changed a number of times. It got sold to various different oil shipping companies, and it has now been, like, scrapped. Wow. So that real-world boat doesn't exist anymore. Yes. Exciting. Cool. We gotta get to the Poseidon for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that leaves us to what's moving on. Oh, I mean, obviously, the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, I I will go ahead and give it to this Poseidon Adventure. Going into this week, I'm like, I am not super excited about either of these films again. But I do think that there is more potential for stuff to talk about with the Poseidon Adventure than Waterworld. Of the two, of something that I would want to watch again, the Poseidon Adventure is it rather than Waterworld. Yeah, like the first half or so of the Poseidon Adventure, I really like. Like, I think up until then, it's fine. uh, Where Waterworld has... One bad part that runs all throughout and then a lot of good stuff around it. The Poseidon Adventure is just like good until it's not. And I can just, I don't know, do some dishes while that's happening. I can put it on while I'm sketching or sweeping or whatever. That's fair. Um, Whereas I don't want to spend more time in Waterworld. 
Not in Kevin Costner's Waterworld. No. Even the world itself is kind of not all that fun to spend time in. It's well made, but, but like I kind of enjoy the the realness of the Poseidon a little bit more. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then the Poseidon adventure is moving on. It will finally get to Athens. Mm-hmm. And Waterworld sinks deeper into darkness. Uh, what's up next week? <sighs> next week... Your sigh doesn't fill me with joy or, or excitement. So next week is going to be super weird because we're going to have very whiplashy films. Uh, so on one hand, we have Captain Phillips, which is a dad thriller starring Tom Hanks uh, talking about the boat that got boarded by Somali pirates and mm. space off of a true story. And then we have Hotel Transylvania 3. <laughs> Gods. <laughs> Summer vacation. Boy, howdy. <laughs> like, we could not have chosen two diametrically opposed films we, for this bracket. Both of those do star America's dad. But one of them is the dad you want, and one of them is the dad you don't want. <laughs> I mean, one of them, the dad is Dracula. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> the dad you want. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Honestly, that the Hotel Transylvania like feels like your worst nightmare because it stars Dracula, but is played by Adam Sandler. I know, I know. <laughs> As a monkey like, paw curls down one more finger. Uh, I mean, I've seen the first two. I've watched them specifically because Gendy Tarkovsky is involved, and I love his work. So I am hoping that the third one is decent. Mm, sure. I've heard decent things about them. I will go in with an open-ish mind, but yeah. I will not watch, watch the other two. I'm not that. I don't care that much. Yeah. And then I have no idea what to expect with Captain Phillips. <laughs> it's Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks rarely turns in a bad movie that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Like, it, it's rare. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So that does it for us this week. If you want to catch up on that episode when it comes out, you should follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Positive Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.